Welcome to the Rescue Church Podcast. You are listening to a message from our Wednesday night service. So for the past two months, I've had the privilege to study the life and work of Apostle Paul. Um, I'm taking courses right now in biblical studies, and I spent a lot of time in him. Different authors wrote about him, really, in his epistles, and it's been really a privilege. Um, it really reshaped how I engage the scriptures, especially his scriptures. And um, tonight is just an overflow of that. So I hope you guys are blessed. And man, you know, I'm <laughs> preparing for this sermon. Um, I have a lot of compassion for Pastor Adam. <laughs> I swear, each slide I have could be its own sermon. And I'm like, this, this is, I should have asked, for, I should have booked like three weeks in a row or something to like unpack all this. And I was like, I can't hostage you guys on a Wednesday night. So really what I did was I just kind of scaled it back. And really what I want to give today is like a framework, a framework of what I'm going to touch upon on the material. And really what I hope to impart is that you could take this framework and engage the material yourself and really just give you, I just want to give you like an, an opening on how to, how to address these things. And really, as I'm, as I'm speaking today and you guys have any questions, um, any areas here where like, oh, I didn't know that and I want to dig into it more. I, I could share scriptures, I could share books, whatever. Really, like, let's just open up dialogue and get more into these things because honestly, my heart for the church is that I want us to be faithful Christians, but I want us to be really smart Christians too. You know, really smart Christians who really know our stuff, who know the word, who know our history. This is important. And some of us, um, this may be very basic, it may be very fundamental, but you know in the Jewish culture, knowing is not head knowledge. Knowing is living it out daily. So if, even though it may sound fundamental or basic, really the question is asking, are you living it out? Are you living this out? And really, that's why we repeat and repeat and you know, share the same things. And I really think um, the Lord is saying it's a season to get back to the basics. Yeah, I think probably the problem we see in the church today is that we kind of lost our way biblically. And... You know, really, we just got to get back to the core, the basis. What, what do we believe? What is this reality that we're living in today according to the scriptures? So um, that's really what I want to hit upon today. I'm going to start with a uh, war analogy. Okay, so I'm no war expert. I'm no military savant. But in my cursory understanding, I imagine that where you are in terms of time in a war and where you are in terms of location in a war changes how you fight the battle. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Right? Like, I'll give you a real example. December 11th, 1941. Do you guys know what that date is? That, yep, World War II. Is that what you said? <laughs> well, it's the, it's the couple of days after the Pearl Harbor bombing, and it's when the U.S. officially declared war and entered the war. So that's December 11th, 1941. And then there's June 6th, 1944, D-Day. D-Day. Many call that the beginning of the end of the war, right? Because we, so we strategically secured a spot in Normandy, and really that's the beginning and end of the war. I imagine a soldier on December 11th heading to Europe in war has a very different mentality than a soldier after D-Day storming into France. That's, and what, 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 am I, what else am I saying? Location. <laughs> Overseas versus homeland, right? If the war is fought on your land, it's very different than a war fought overseas, right? I mean, 
the best thing we could really like have a, some kind of close example of that is like 9-11 when we were attacked. That was a very different field than all the other wars that we experienced that's not on our own turf. So you can train to be the perfect soldier, but if you don't understand the time and place you are in the war, you, you could be really lost. You're as good as dead. So what's my point here? In order to be effective people of God, we must current correctly locate ourselves in time and location in the entire biblical meta-narrative. I think a lot of that is not really understood well in the body. Um, there's a lot of confusion, lukewarmness, compromise, essentially ineffectiveness. And I think a lot of that is because we don't know this. We don't grasp the unseen reality that we're really called to live into today at this time. And I just really want to open that up today and really just level set and us get on the same page. What is this unseen reality that we're living into? Because, you know, you see it a lot, right? A lot of people have this faith like, oh, Jesus paved my way into heaven, and I'm just waiting here to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah. But that waters down the Christian experience so much. Because all it does is diminishes Christianity into a morality. But us being Christians, it's a vocation. We have a vocational calling. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, life with God will bless your life today. That's all good. It provides healing, it provides blessing, it provides joy and peace. But it's so much more than that. So what do I mean by unseen reality? So when Jesus died on the cross, that was an event where creation was never the same again. Something shifted. You know what's the most powerful thing about Christianity compared to other world religions? You know, every other world religion, you know, belief, ideology, they offer like a philosophy, a way of life, like a step-by-step -step on how to better your life. That's what they hang, hang their head on. For us, we hang our head on an event. It's a historical event on the cross. Our life and future is rooted on this historical event, and the result of that is the event on the cross is the unseen reality. So I keep saying unseen reality. It is truly an unseen reality because we have faith to see it while people without faith don't see it. If you read Hebrews 11.3, by the way, I'm going to have a lot of scripture here. Um, I'm going to jump around a lot. So to save you guys the pain, all, all scriptures will be on the, on the monitor here. So let me just move over. <clears throat> In Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And... People without faith, they have a veil. They don't see what's going on. In 2 Corinthians 4.3, it says, And even our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is an image of God. Yeah. Our reality is informed by the gospel first. Our perspective on our future, our perspective on our present, has to be shaped through the lens of the cross. If anything else is in conflict with the unseen reality, we must wisely discern which one are we choosing to believe? Which one are we living into? So what does that mean for us as a people of God collectively? The events on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was for the purpose of a God to create a new people, new humanity, us, that will reflect his image, God's image, the image of Christ. Really what that is is restoring the Genesis 1 vocation. 
Back onto creation, which is new creation in process. We're currently in process of a new creation as we wait for Jesus' return to fully consummate the promise of restoring heaven onto earth as one. That is what we're called to do. So the question is, what is informing your present day reality? What is informing your future reality? Because what you believe about the present shapes how you live into the present. What you believe about the future shapes how you live into the present. You could tell me all you want about what I believe, what I believe. I could tell it by your actions today what you really believe. <laughs> right? Man, there's this, this one illustration. I can't shake it. It must be a rescue church thing, but I keep thinking of this song from back in the day. It's going to date me and expose me, but <laughs> there was a song, um, I think the, it was with the locks, and it was called 24 Hours to Live. <laughs> yep, where would you go? What would you do? Who would you notify? And then each verse, <laughs> each verse of rappers talking about some wicked things they'll do because they have 24 hours to live. But what, what that song really informed me, even at that age, is wow, yeah. What I believe about the future changes everything about what I'm going to do today. Yep. Right? That's good. It's everything, yeah. So let me ask you, let me flip that. Let me ask you this. If you had eternity to live, and this earth is in your eternal stewardship, how would you live out today? How would you do that? So the question is, what's informing your reality? Is it science and history that we learn from school? Is it the news? Is it the media? Is it the state of our economy? Is it culture? Is it the talking heads on TV? I'm not saying that all those things are, are lies or wrong, but at the end of the day, the truth of God has to take precedent over even all those things. Yes. That's who we are. We, have, we see things that people don't see. And we've got to look and live into it. Okay, this is uh, how Gordon Fee, he's a very br brilliant Pentecostal scholar, he says it this way with, about the unseen reality. Although persons individually became members of the people of God, the goal was not simply to fit individuals for heaven, but to create a people who by the power of the Spirit lived out the life of the future, the life of God himself, into the present day, age. His other quote is, the Holy Spirit is the experienced, empowering return of God's own personal presence in and among us, who enables us to live as a radically eschatological people in the present world while we await the consummation. Eschatological is just a fancy word of saying the end times, the end of days, the judgment days. We are end time people, meaning we are end time people in the sense that Jesus is returning to fulfill his promises. But that's in the future, but we're living that out as if it's today. So there's a, there's a tension there. So tonight, I'm going to jump into the, the, the gospel work of Paul, uh, Paul his letters, um, to really give you a framework of what he was thinking. Because he grasped this. He understood this so well. And he was planting churches with this truth in mind. You see, in the first century ancient Mediterranean world, under the rule of the Roman Empire, Paul was planting a network of churches. At the heart, this is at the heart of it. He's like, he understood, he, there was an urgency in him. He's like, we've got to get this right. And he was developing a group of people. But to understand Paul, we've got to first grasp the Jewish way of thinking. It's actually, our faith is rooted in Jewish belief, believe it or not. Yep. Right? Back then, the, the early church, Christianity, it wasn't even a new religion. There wasn't a religion called Christianity. It was just, it was just a different sect of the Jewish belief. Yep. 
They, they, were, they weren't considered a separate group. It was, there were Jewish people who believed Jew, uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of yeah. their law. Yep, all Jews. There, there was no Gentiles then. There was probably some, but the, the Gentile church came later. So we really got to understand the Jewish thinking, the Jewish theology as well. It's, it's really vital to our understanding the Bible correctly. That's right. So I'm going to hit upon some, some big major things in the, in the way a Jew would have thought in the first century. Number one, obvious one, they followed one God. But that was radical in their time. It was radical in the whole ancient world. You know when Abraham, when God approached Abraham, he said, follow me. One thing that's kind of lost is that Abraham was living in a world where there was a God for everything. There was a God of, the, of, of every little thing, every little source. And he wasn't just saying, follow me, but he was saying, follow me, an invisible God. I have no name. You don't know my name. Leave your family. Leave all your other gods. That is radical faith. That's what Abraham did. And that's what sets apart the people of Israel. Actually, in the first century Mediterranean world, the Jews were called atheists because of this. Yeah, because they had one God who was invisible. They didn't worship any images. And, they, and, and, and everyone else, they just added on more gods. They could worship this, worship that. It was syncretistic society. So the Jews were called radical atheists. They, had, they believed he, they had less belief than the, the rest of them. In the ancient Near East, gods were the source of everything. Economy, health, politics, family, it was all integrated. It was not separate. You know what I realized after kind of studying this? It doesn't matter what time or ge geographic location you're in. There's really just two, si two types of societies. One with God at the center and one God with God without. And the one without God is just always leads to idolatry. That's just, that's just really the case. The, the picture I get is like, Imagine we're like um, little metal balls, right, who, who draws to magnets. And there's like a, like a ring, like a magnet ring on the edges, and that's idolatry. Without God at the center, we're just attracted to idolatry. It just spreads out. What's the only way to get us off of the idolatry? You need a stronger magnet, stronger than everything else, right at the center. And it pulls people back to the one God. Yeah. So really, at the end of the day, it's either your society with one God or you're not. So anyway, that's the world that Paul was living in. Um, Caesar was also deified as Lord and Savior. So when Paul is calling Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, he's very intentional. He's going after Caesar, the ideology, the ideology of Caesar. So whoever says Christianity should not get into politics, they don't know what they're talking about. It was very political. The early church was very political. Whoever says Christianity shouldn't touch your money or your pockets, they don't know what they're talking about because it touched everything. It touched money, family, politics. Any part of your life that is not under the lordship of Jesus should be disrupted by the gospel. Okay, next one. This idea of heaven and earth and original creation. So Garden of Eden, God's original design, Earth was our space for man. Heaven was God's space for God. But it wasn't separate. It was one. It was overlapping. It's like two different dimensions overlapping. God and humanity dwell together. This whole idea that heaven should be over there and we're just trying to leave earth to go get there, that's not a Jewish idea. 
that's not God's idea. That was actually a Hellenistic Greek worldview. So we've got to shake that out of our system too. So what, what are the Jews waiting for? They're waiting for the Messiah because they're waiting for that Eden experience again where heaven and earth rejoin and united as one. And then God's presence in the temple. The temple was key to Israel and the Jewish people. All the way from Moses with the tabernacle to David and Solomon, it's because they understood God's presence was everything. Even Moses said he's not going to enter until God goes with them. Everything was centered around God's presence. So the temple was actually a symbol, an actual place that pointed to that heaven and earth existence as one. It was the one place where God could dwell. So, you know, there was animal sacrifice back then to get into the temple. Those are all foreshadowings of the Lamb of God, of Jesus, the sacrifice to rejoin God's dwelling place into earth. Okay. So at this time, the Jews were in exile. They were under the Roman, they were under the Roman Empire. And really, this is their story. This is their narrative that they always came, came to. Whether it's Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon, they kept getting um, taken away from their place. And they, don't, they, don't, they didn't believe that this was from, from their military might or strength. They always believed this is because their disobedience to God. So even in this state, in that first century time, a time of Jesus, they believed they were under this Roman rule because of their, dis- of their disobedience. And they were waiting for a, pur- a purification, a cleansing, so that they could go back to the promised land and, and be with God for eternity. And that leads to the messianic promise. This is the, the faith that the Jews are rooted in. It wasn't just a spiritual ideology, ideology promise, but it was a, a geopolitical promise. They believed that the Messiah would come, free them from Roman captivity, and give them a, a place to, to dwell forever with God. So a savior was geopolitical, savior was everything. And all this leads to the future hope. The future hope is that there'll be a resurrection and a reunion on heaven and earth. Um, there's scriptures in the, prop, in, the, in the prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah Daniel, where um, yeah, they, 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 they point to these things, that there'll be a resurrection of the dead with the Messiah. Okay, so that's just a little overview of what the Jewish mindset was. Saul of Tarsus, so let's look into Saul. Saul was a Pharisee, which means he was utterly committed to the holiness and righteousness to the law. See, to him, that, to him holiness, holiness cannot be compromised because he was waiting. He was waiting for the Messiah to come. There shouldn't, there, it had to be pure. If disobedience is what made God leave, it had to be pure to make God come. Saul was zealous. Zeal was a virtue. So to even the point of violence, like his heroes would have been people like the prophet Elijah, where um, after, after <laughs> he'll slay like hundreds of um, Baal worshippers. So to him, like it was even worth killing to, for the sake of God, for the sake of holiness. So it's easy to just villainize the Pharisees. It's easy to villainize like, like Saul, um, you know, approving the death of Stephen. But you got to understand where he's coming from. Stephen and the Christians are talking about things like the temple falling down. This is a threat to the, to, the, to the messianic. Yeah, yeah. 
But you got, you got to know, this zeal, it doesn't go anywhere. When, when, when Paul has his, his conversion, that zeal doesn't leave. It just gets rerouted. And you'll see that. Okay. What's next? Okay, so now we'll talk about Paul and his revelation to the, in the road to Damascus. Well, number one is the main thing. He, he, he finally found out Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies, the prophecies and promises as he was waiting his whole life. He was the completion of the law. And also, another thing he realizes is that this promise was just, wasn't just for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles, it was for the whole world. He was a man who was rooted in so much scripture, he would have known, Isaiah 49, I have set you for a light to the nations so that you may be salvation bringers to the end of the earth. And this is what sets Paul off on his mission. So what's, what's Paul got to do at this point? It's, it's crazy because think about it. It's, it's a, oh, I skipped one thing. He's from Tarsus. Tarsus was not a, a Jewish um, civil, like a city. It was very multicultural. Like Jewish was kind of the, the minorities in that city. So even there, he was engaging with Greek thought, Greek people, Hellenistic people. So he was already engaging in the mind of the Gentiles. So God, you know, he took a Pharisee, a zealous Pharisee, who's already so well-versed in, in the Gentile culture, he just needed a, a revelation, and he was a guy to become the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. It's crazy. It's like he picked the perfect guy. He knew. So what's my point here? My point is, don't underestimate your past. Don't underestimate what you went through, because when you're in line with God, all those, those, those things don't go to waste. Okay, so here's Paul. He set... He's on this new humanity project. Paul is tasked to establish a new human race in this first century world. What is this new, new human people? What's this new humanity? Because the people of the kingdom of God are no longer bound by ethnicity, culture, history, geography. The Jews and Gentiles have a new uh, identity in Christ. What is it? In Galatians 3.28, he says, there are... No, there are neither no Jew, nor Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female. You are one in Christ. So how do Paul create a people that's set apart? And you see as Paul plants churches, he engages with the existing culture, Jew versus Gentile. He, he's working out what it means to be a new hum humanity, ushering new creation in real time through his letters. And in his work through the epistles, he's not just telling us what to do, but he's teaching us how to think. This is, this is the main thing here. As I get into these scriptures, we got to get away from these teachings as just something like, this is what we have to do, this is what we have to do. Because it's really about, he's teaching us how do we think, how do we think like Jesus? We got, we got to grasp the concepts, we got to grasp the, the, the essence of it, and think bigger. It's not just a rule book. Yep, that's right. Okay, so here are some themes in the Pauline epistles. Holiness sanctification, unity, generosity, suffering, and Christ-mindedness. So I'm going to kind of go through each one of these topics um, through some scripture. But once again, these topics, we got to stop making it like our individual thing. Like this is our individual pursuit. But we got to think in the context of what does this have to do with the people of God? How are these themes creating and developing a people of God? So I'll begin with holiness. 1 Corinthians 17.20 But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral persons, 
sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Remember the temple? What Jewish um, people thought about the temple? Paul understood now we are the new temple. So we have to be clean. See, Paul was protecting the temple. The presence of God was everything again, right? So that's why holiness was so important. The church of Corinth at this time, it was plagued with sexual immorality. There was even one guy sleeping with his father's wife. In the church. In the church. In the church. And this is what made Paul really mad, though. There was no shame. There was no shame in this. You see, you got to understand, this was a church of Gentiles. They, They don't understand the Jewish way. They just came into the church, into this belief, and they're not really getting it. So they thought that the body had no eternal value. So if the body had no eternal value, yeah, what's, what does sexual immorality really matter? You know, what's done or doesn't really matter. But they didn't get that we were now the new temples, and that's what Paul was fighting for. You know when Paul said that um, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What he's talking about is, at that time, there was like... Um, Olympic Games. It was called the Isthmian Games. It was kind of like mini Olympic, Olympic Games that would come to town. And when those things came to town, there was like a traveling brothel that came with it. And in that city, in that culture, it was expected that you partake in the sexual activity. It was permissible. They expected you to do it. So in that sense, they were thinking, okay, this is lawful for me. Like it's, 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 it's kosher. Everyone's doing it. There's no laws against it. But Paul's saying, just because it's lawful, it doesn't mean it's beneficial. Good. And, we really, and, and it's not just about sexual morality. We've got to think about everything else. As temples of God, maybe it's not in the Bible, maybe it's not really black and white, but really we just got to ask, what is beneficial for me as the people of God? And we've got to start thinking it this way. Okay, another, script, another text on holiness, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, 8. Do you not know that a little leaven... leaven leaves the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's, he's talking the same thing about sexual morality here. But once again, he's not thinking about the individual. He's thinking about the community, the people of God, the church. It has to be preserved. So this whole image of the leaven is if there's one little piece of immorality, impurity, it's going to infect the whole community. So he's really fighting for the community. He's saying, cut it out. Obviously, with gentleness and rebuke, and the hope is to have them sanctified and bring them back in. But really, we've got to take this seriously. So what am I saying here? Church, we've got to fight for each other's sanctification. We've got to fight for each other's holiness. This is crucial to the mission to be people of God. I have good news for you. Your holiness is not dependent on your performance. For you now, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's his will. If it's his will, he will empower you to do it. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, 
because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as he told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit in you. Your holiness, your sanctification, is not dependent on your performance and how well you could be holy. You have the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Your holiness develop and express, is expressed through the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So let God work your heart so your behavior results in holiness. This doesn't mean you're like an uh, inactive bystander in this work. You have a role too. It's really simple. It's just listen and obey the Lord. But here's the issue with that. To listen and obey, we have to first hear the Lord. And second, we have to trust the Lord to obey him. But we all deal with major blocks in this area. And that's where really inner healing comes in. This is where we need to get healed. Right. You know, Tina and I, we've been in this inner healing um, ministry for a few years now, really just helping people walk through their things, um, you know, and, and, and get healed so they could hear God clear, clearly and just, you know, get more sanctified. And, you know, at first, I thought this ministry was really, like, all about this powerful encounters, like... Um, like, like God coming into these tra traumatic memories and, and reshaping everything, rewiring everything, or kicking out demons, you know, kicking out demons in the name of Jesus. I mean, that's all true. That's all valid. But the more we do it, I'm realizing one thing. It's really about the mind. Yes. It's just really about the mind. You know, in the Jewish tradition, the soul, the heart, is mind and heart. It's, it's not separate. God is going after your soul. He's going after the mind. And really, if I could boil down what healing is, is God saying, hey, give me that. Give me that thing in the past, that trauma, that lie, that disappointment, that relationship. Here, show it to me. What I say about you means more than what this defined you in the past. That's all he's saying. And you're choosing that. You're choosing his word. That's the healing journey. Your sanctification is dependent on seeing God clearly seeing him correctly. So guys, I really urge you to, to pursue this. See God correctly, because that has everything to do with your sanctification and your holiness. Yeah, we just have to yield, heal, and obey, and you'll experience the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, I'll go to the next topic. Paul writes about unity just as much as holiness. These two things were huge for him, holiness and unity. Holiness and unity, you go through his pistols, those things are always there. 
1 Corinthians, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Colossians 3, 12 to 16. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, one more. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So unity was so important for Paul at his time when he's building these churches and this network of churches because there was an urgency. This was the urgency. Number one, he actually in the beginning thought Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. So he thought he had a shot clock on this. And second, he was anticipating the end of ages. That was in Mark 13, the end of the age. You know, many, many people think that's the end of the world. No, that's not what it meant. It meant the fall of Jerusalem. And Paul knew this. So he believed that the fall of Jerusalem is happening. I got to get this church united as fast as possible. Here's the reason. If the church between the Jew and Gentile weren't united and the fall of Jerusalem happened, this could be the implication. The Gentile Christians would interpret that, oh, this event is God cutting off Israel and it will alienate the Jewish church. The Jewish members will blame this event on the Gentile Christians saying they weren't following the law correctly, they weren't getting circumcised, they weren't following the Torah, and it will just cause more divisiveness. So Paul, with urgency, was fighting for unity for the church. Good. That is what was at stake. So what does that mean for us today in our context? Our unity is essential to our vocation as being God's people, living out the future and present day. You see, unity is not just for sake of being this you know, happy community to get along and enjoy things together. Because at the end, if that's all it is, we're just a social club. If we're just a social club, honestly, why would we lay our life down for each other for unity? It's not worth it. But what's at stake? The stake is this, the people of God, our vocation. If that's at stake and that's in our view, we will lay down our life to each other for the sake of unity because that's important. So really, I just want to get us into this context. And healing keeps coming up with unity too. You know, I, I think the Lord's saying that we can't even be a unified church until we get healed. Right? Yep. Healing unifies you to God, unifies you to yourself. If that's not even there, how can we unify to one another? So really, I think it's a time of healing for, for the church. Okay, generosity. I just got one verse on this. It's a long one. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave us much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service 
to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as we had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness, earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for the sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift acceptable be believed while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. In the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So one thing Paul was doing uh, with the churches is, once again, to unify the church. He had to get all these churches unified. They were planted all over Asia Minor, um, Rome, and he had to find a way to get these people to act as one family. So he was actually leveraging generosity for unification. You see, you know, we live in a culture today where gifts don't have strings attached. In that ancient culture, gifts had all the strings attached. It meant honor. It meant shame. So he was leveraging that. So when he was collecting um, offerings from all the Gentile churches to give to Jerusalem, yep. it was the Gentile churches saying, hey, I honor you and I recognize you as a church. We're not doing our own thing here. And when Jerusalem accepts it, he's saying, okay, we accept you as a church. He's knitting a family together. So really, what is generosity for us? That's the same thing. When we honor the saints with our generosity to one another, we continue to knit the fabric of our oneness, of our unity as one of God's people. And, generous, and generosity is also an overflow. It's just a natural overflow of kingdom people. It's outward facing, it's outward flowing. In the ancient world, medicine was completely reserved for people who could afford it. The poor did not have medicine. It was the Christians who made sure that people could, be, could obtain medicine. Hospitals was a Christian idea. Education was also for the elite. It was a Christian who really advanced even reading, even literature. Um, it's interesting, I even read that they didn't invent the book, the codex, but there were pioneers in making sure the codex became popularized because he, they wanted people to read the Bible and bring it down to earth. So this is all generosity. It's, it's not just money. It's sharing every opportunity and benefit we have from being in the kingdom. It's really our way of saying this is what the kingdom of God is like, and it will be like for eternity. There is no lack, and we can freely share this. Once again, it's a future reality we're pulling into today, and we're showing the world that and pointing to Jesus and his return. Okay, suffering. So we did not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentarily affection is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as you look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Once again, an unseen reality. We are marked by how we suffer as people of God. We don't avoid suffering, but we could endure suffering and we could suffer well. Paul writes a lot about suffering and that's a tension we must grasp. 
um, you know, that's part, of, that's part of the whole idea that we are present day people living a future reality today because there's an overlapping age right now. There's the present age where there's still sin, sickness, evil, wickedness, but then the future is there too. So we're, we're in that gap. So of course we're going to have suffering, but suffering doesn't have hope for us. I mean, suffering has hope for us. In Romans 8, it says creation is groaning. It's groaning towards the increase of heaven coming onto earth. So yes, we suffer, but we suffer well, and we intercede. We stand in the gap for people who are suffering and going through hell, knowing that there is a redemptive edge to that suffering. So really, my point here is that we need to grab a healthy theology of suffering. And we need to know that it's tension. I think what we don't like about it is there's a tension. Because on one extreme, you could completely deny suffering and think, you know, this whole journey with God is like all blessings and, you know, you get shocked when something bad happens to you. On the other extreme, you think like, oh, you know, we're sinners and we deserve all suffering. It's punishment from God. Both are really unhealthy ends of the suffering. The correct way is that we're in a tension between suffering in the present and the glory in the future. Okay, my last point. Oh, sorry, one more thing about suffering. Only let your manner of life be worthy of gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you also suffer for his sake. And three times, in the second Corinthians, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Suffering unites us. It unites us to Christ. It unites us to one another. And it's actually when we're weak, we're strong, we have strength. So really, my encouragement to you is when we suffer, you know, we suffer for one another. You know, we, you know, we always say that we, we celebrate when there's celebration, we mourn when there's mourning. That's really our call, that everyone's suffering it's not just an individual thing, but it's for the church together. So even with what's going on in the world today, you know, it's easy to just block that away and kind of focus on our own thing. But really, as a united people of God, how can we suffer well and intercede and be God's people together? Okay, last. Pursue the mind of Christ. It's really about being Christ-minded people. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 1, 3. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us, given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by one, 
for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Living out the future in the present day is setting your minds on things above. It is consistently being aware of the unseen reality we are living in. That's having the mind of Christ. The Christ mind is freely given. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to beg for it. You simply ask, God, what is your mind in this situation? This is vital for us to step into our vocation as God's people. So once again, we're not just focused on rules and how to be these um, you know, cleaned up individuals to get into heaven, but really we're taking on the mind of Christ and he gives us creative expression on how that flows out in our lives. We have agency. We are ambassadors of heavens. Like we are managers. You know, like in a job, you get promoted to a manager. The point of your promotion in that position is not so you could go to your boss and ask, how do I do every little thing? You know, what, what, do that, do that. It's because they trust that you understand how to think like the company, think like the manager, think like your boss. That's how we're supposed to act as kingdom people. We have creative expression. We have Christ's mind, and we've got to start flowing from that place. I'll give you another example, politics. Our hope is not in who's in office. If anything, politics should have hope in us, right? So it doesn't matter. I'm not, listen, I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't have a side or don't have an opinion. These things matter. Who's in office matters. You know, who's in power matters. But that's not what our hope is rested in. We are kingdom people. We have the solutions to the world. Just like Pastor preached last week, right? Pharaoh went to Joseph. That should be the reality for all of us. So how do we create a culture, an atmosphere that people can see the fruit and they want to model their things after us, after the church? They want to model their policies after us. They want to model their businesses after us. They want to model their societies after us. That comes from us having Christ's mind and applying it to our current context, wherever you guys are. Okay, so I'm going to end um, this talk with a story. Have you guys heard of John Harper? I, I, I haven't heard of him in a minute. He just kind of popped up on my, he kind of popped up on my feed and <laughs> someone wants me to finish. And I read his story. This is a, a wild story. So John Harper, he was a Scottish pastor and, and evangelist. In 1910, Harper was invited to speak at a church in Chicago, and that church broke out in revival. And he went back home to, um, like, to, to UK, and he was asked to come back to that same church um, to preach again. So he, he accepted that invitation, and he boarded the Titanic to get back into the US. So he boarded that ship. With his, he was a widower, so he didn't have a wife, so he had his, a young daughter. He had his sister and her daughter, his niece. So this is a wild story. So, on Sunday, the 14th of April, 1912, the day when the iceberg was struck, the weather was fine, the sea calm. Harper attended the church service for the passengers. His niece reported that later that afternoon, she saw her uncle speaking individually to people about their souls. It seems he was in the habit of seeking out the lost sheep wherever he went. The Titanic struck the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. on that same day. As the call was issued for passengers to vacate their cabins, Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket told her that she would see him again one day and passed her to one of the crewmen. After watching her safely board one of the lifeboats, he removed his jacket and gave it to one of the other passengers. One survivor strictly, distinctly remembers him, him shout, 
women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. Harper knew that believers were ready to die, but the unsaved were not ready. Harper then ran along the decks, pleading with the people to turn to Christ, and with the ship sinking, he called one of the titanic orchestras to play, Nearer My God to Thee. Gathering people around him on the deck, then he knelt down, and with, and with holy joy in his face, he raised his arm in prayer. As the ship began to lurch, he jumped into the icy waters and swam frantically to all he could reach, beseeching them to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Finally, as hypothermia set in, John Harper sank beneath the waters and passed into the Lord's presence. He was 39. Four years later, a young Scotsman stood up in a meeting and gave the following testimony. I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow on a piece of wreck near me. John Harper said, man, are you saved? No, I'm, no, I'm not, I said. He replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strangely, it brought him back again later. And he said, are you saved now? I said, no, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after he went down and there alone in the night, two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Why, why am I sharing this story? When I, when I heard this, I, I just put myself in these situations. Like, if that was me, what would I do? And I realized a response like that by John Harper, that doesn't come in the moment. You don't just muster up courage to be like that. That's a daily, daily, daily belief in what kind of reality you're really living in. Right. He breathed it in like air, in prayer, in scripture, in belief, and he, believed, he walked it out. So the second this happens, it was just a natural, organic response. I think that's our call, guys, really. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to like, encourage martyrdom and all that, but really, when things, you know, when things hit the fan, how do we respond? Are we gonna see the reality that's unseen, that's visible to us, or are we gonna respond like the rest of the world? So really, that's where I'll leave you guys today. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've empowered us with the Holy Spirit to walk this life, to walk this earth. And Lord, this is a time where I just really encourage um, yeah, us here to really get a hunger, a hunger for, for you, a hunger for the word, to go deep, to understand, to grasp what is it that you're laying out for us as your people. Father, I just invite your healing touch, your healing spirit into this room as well. Any way that you want you know, us to deal with our things, deal, you know, really address issues and whatnot, I just ask for your graceful touch to really just put those things into view and bring the right people into our past to get our healing, Lord. And Father, really, we just ask for, yeah, your strength. Um, each day, we need your Holy Spirit. We're so dependent on you. Let us not forget that each morning. Help us live out the vocation you called us to as your people living out the future reality in the present day, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.